Welcome to Board Game Binge, the place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content from across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Mark Spector, owner of the Grand Gamers Guild and publisher of several successful titles, such as The Artemis Project, Endangered, and Gorinto, among others. Currently, their follow-up title, The Artemis Odyssey, is currently on Kickstarter. Mark, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing, sir? James, it is fantastic to be here. I am excited to uh, have been invited on and get to talk to your audience today. Hey, no one is as excited as I am. (laughs) (laughs) No, it certainly is awesome to have you. Uh, You've been part of The Binge, actually, for quite some time. You've been an active member of our community on the uh, our private Facebook group. We encourage anybody uh, who wants to join our private Facebook group, just look for Board Game Binge. You can find it, uh, and I just uh, it's been awesome having you. So thank you so much for that. I wanted to start off by kind of helping people understand who you are as an individual. Maybe just start off by just explaining to us what is Grand Gamers Guild? What is that? Sure. So Grand Gamers Guild is, uh, I like to say on the good days, I call myself a publisher. So I uh, decided to embark on this adventure in the gaming space after many other adventures about five years ago. And uh, it has grown into uh, what I hope I can call a self-sustaining publishing business. Although these times are truly are truly testing things. Let me let me tell you. Now, your first game, I think, was uh, 2016, September 2016-ish is when you launched your first uh, game on Kickstarter. Um, what were you doing before that? Like, what kind of led up to that? Oh, wow. So I, uh, I, I'm going to start in the, in the quote-unquote distant past. So Go way back, man. It's okay. So I used to sell insurance for about 20 years. Um, and then I became woefully disenfranchised from that. And I was in a very fortunate position. I often say I am uh, the luckiest guy alive. And I was able to retire from that and move into from having gaming as a, uh, an activity into it becoming my full-time gig. Um, prior to that, though, I had uh, attended Origins as my first convention and had been a role-play gamer at that point, but sort of had my mind blown learning about the, uh, the board game space, which I didn't know existed in the way we know it today. And um, I attended Origins for a few years. Then I started volunteering for the convention. Then I started running events at the convention. Then I ran an event team and me and uh, eight to 12 other people would put together 150, 200 events over the course of the show for um, other publishers. We would showcase their games. Then I uh, came back one year and decided to co-found a convention in my own hometown. Is and the, then as uh, I ran con, is that the one? Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Nice. Uh, it's been on hold for the second year now. I'm not really a part of it any longer, but, yeah. um, uh, but it, it, it hopefully will come back in 2022. We'll see. And then, um, and then I transitioned out of that and decided to transition into publishing. So I've had, a, I've had my finger in many, many gaming pies, uh, <laughs> you know, over the course of uh, 15 years. How hard was it to start a gaming convention? That sounds like a monumental task. Well, when I was in college, I, um, I sort of incidentaled my way into becoming a hall president. And okay. when I did that, they gave me a budget and they told me, make things happen. And so it was kind of a, whatever I could conjure up and, and, and do within the budget, I was, I was given authorization to do. So in a sense, I've been a project manager for a really, really long time. Uh, okay, yeah. um, 
And running a convention is just one giant project that comprises many, many little projects. Yeah. Um, so it's to me, it's just a matter of getting the systems in place. And after that, I don't want to say things run themselves because there's always problems yeah. um, like like pandemics and worldwide shipping crises and things like that. But um, but yeah, you put out the fires as they arise. You put the systems in place so that hopefully things go as smoothly as possible. Uh, but it was awesome. It was fantastic. I am really proud of the four years that I gave to Grand Con and the foundation that I helped lay before I uh, before I left it behind and moved on to other things. And what was the Grand Gaming Academy demo team? Was it part of that or is that something that was completely separate? Completely separate. Grand Gaming Academy was um, the event team that I ran where anywhere from eight to a dozen of us would visit Origins and then eventually it became Origins and Gen Con. And we ran events on behalf of other publishers. Oh, so we cool. worked with Tasty Minstrel and Stronghold and Passport and Dice Hate Me Games and... Um, Oh, goodness gracious. Uh, the publishers of Alien Frontiers before it moved to Game Salute. Uh, it's escaping me. Anyway, we had about 10 different publishers that we worked with over time and we got all their new titles and we would run, you know, run them, run them once a day in variable time slots over the yeah. course of the show. And it was amazing because, you know, you can only spend so much time at a convention going up and down the aisles looking at the things. Um, and I, I'm a bit light up and get it. And then I could be like, fly birdie, go ahead and play without me. You yeah. know, um, it's super exciting. And so, uh, you know, I put together a group of like-minded people who uh, enjoy the gaming space and uh, we made it happen at a, on an epic scale. That's cool. So was it that that gave you the kind of the bug to say, okay, I want to get into game design myself? Cause you were, I think co-designer on that first game too, were you not? Or were you no, just no, no. publishing? Jason, Jason Slangerland was the solo designer. Okay. So no, I was just publishing. Although so I, go ahead. I was going to say, so you're just publishing. So the, the whole, you know, designing side hasn't really taken hold yet, or it's just, not I, to... I put together two very bad designs and I realized that I do not have the stick to to iterate and reiterate and reiterate. It is not in my nature. And uh, that's just not where my skills lie. So I'm not going to, not going to force myself into something that I don't like. There are much more talented people out there. I work yeah. with many of them and um, you know, I'm good at pushing the emails around and uh, you know, getting things to come to fruition by, by having good people around me. Well, there's nothing wrong with uh, playing to your strengths. That's for sure. Right. Exactly. So this current Kickstarter you have, which I mean, correct. Congratulations. It, it is just Thank crushing you. it. Last I checked, you're at like 83,000. I'm going to put this in Canadian dollars because it's always larger, but oh, $83,000 right, right, right. $83, on a $38,000 goal. Um, mm -hmm. That's huge. 937 backers so far. You've got five days to go still. As we know, we got that back in hockey stick. So I have no doubt, at least in Canadian dollars, you're probably going to cross 100,000. Um, you just got to be really, really excited, really pumped about that. Oh, totally. Um, I, I am. You know, you see the Kickstarter campaign typically broken into thirds. If we see in the last two days what we saw in the first two days, uh, we should we should fingers crossed break a hundred thousand American. That's sort of my yeah. unofficial hope, um, and we'll see what happens. But regardless, the project has done. Um, you know, it's two hundred and something percent, so it's done yeah. more than more than what I wanted it to do. And you know, the sky's the limit. It's a fantastic game that deserved to be reintroduced to a new audience, and we're. You know, we, we overhauled the look. Uh, the mechanics have been uh, honed to serve a more modern gaming audience because yeah. the original game it was based on 
was definitely, um, you know, showed its age, uh, mm-hmm. even though it was a fantastic design. And, uh, you know, it's ready to be presented as a larger, uh, as a piece of the larger Artemis story. So, so, so that I understand, I'm going to kind of pull that thread a little bit. So on totally. the, the original Artemis project, so this, is this like a reboot of the original Artemis project then, or is this more kind of like a continuation of the store utilizing similar mechanics? So yeah, the, I could see where I sort of muddied the waters there. That's all right. So there's an old game from 2009 called Ad Astra. The mm. Artemis Odyssey is a reprint of Ad Astra, but it is a continuation of the Artemis story. So mm. we repurposed an existing game to tell the second chapter in uh, yeah. the larger Artemis story that we want to build. No, that's crazy. I'm going to share my screen for people who are watching either live or on the replay. Um, but man, does this game look cool? First and foremost, I just want to give props to, I thought I saw it was um, uh, David Diaz, I think that did your, from Mesa Labs did the, uh, the video, which was awesome. <laughs> Congratulations yeah. on the video. That video was freaking great. And uh, I like the fact that because you're talking about planets and spaceships and all this kind of stuff, the way he created this video is all the pieces are kind of floating, like they're in space, right? As you're, So like your game yep, yep. components are actually in space, which I thought was a really clever approach. And of course, the voiceover and everything, which is amazing. So kudos to uh, Mesa Labs. That was fantastic. We've had them yeah, on the David podcast David is tremendously well. talented. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay, so you know, David and his oh, team. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We talent. had him on the podcast not too long ago. Uh, he has a great uh, YouTube show called um, uh, Tabletop Animators. So they they react oh, okay. to other people's videos. And, uh, and uh, yeah, he's just a uh, super, super talented guy. So then I was looking at your campaign. Um, I noticed that uh, there's a lot of plastic in this game. Is that why your base goal seemed a little bit higher than I'm, I'm normally used to seeing? So a 38,000 base goal seemed a bit high, but then when I saw the amount of let's call this plastic crack in the, in the game, that kind of told me, okay, they got molds and all this other, is that why the, the base level was as high as it was, or was there some other reason? Oh, well, it is the reason, um, okay. but, but sort of there's a reason behind the reason, which is that that is what I realistically needed to create a print run um yeah. that of um of of a realistic size because you know if i try to create 500 units this game would be a fortune and i shouldn't be in the gaming business but yeah. um in order to print a sustainable number of units for the kickstarter backers and for um a retail edition that was the amount that we needed and i know this doesn't always resonate on kickstarter but i try to be as transparent as possible i try to set a realistic goal i try to in this case have a have a campaign where we have the ability to put everything in on the front end and not string people along with stretch goals mm-hmm. um and i understand the whole stretch goal model was developed because it worked people love those reveals people love yeah. that collective triumph and i have campaigns that operate that way but you know when i looked at structuring this campaign properly there just wasn't enough um enough miscellaneous things i mean you can't you can't upgrade one piece at a time you know yeah. and people aren't people aren't going to accept having miniature spaceships and not having the other three things be miniatures so yeah. so you know i, I could have set the goal at twenty thousand and then said the, there's one stretch goal everything turns to miniatures and that's forty thousand. but, but mm-hmm. that would have been you know that would have been silly so uh we just put it all out there and i was i had a fallback position i had a plan um should we not have funded but we funded in about six hours and um and now i don't want to say we're cruising that would sound a little arrogant a little presumptuous we actually had kind of a rough day today but yeah. we're still doing great and we're still going to see a boom in the last 48 hours and uh and we're in great shape so 
So for those listening, there is a dog in the background. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's all good. We all have pets and, uh, you know, home-based interviews is, uh, is what you get. So, exactly. you know, when I, when I look at a campaign like this, everybody has that mid campaign slump, right? So it's always this kind of reverse bell curve that you'll always see in the campaigns. And I mean, I've been through it and pretty much everybody I know has been through it. This on a campaign, you're going to have kind of a, a little dip at, uh, in the, in the middle, uh, kind of, uh, two weeks. And then everything kind of hockey sticks in the back end. Um, when I look at um, the amount of ships that you had in this game, I, I was I was blown away. I, I mean, it, it looks like a lot of fun. And I can see the importance of having those three-dimensional plastic pieces, right? Yes, you can use a cutout, like a two-dimensional meeple, but it doesn't have that same kind of tactile feel that when you're literally picking up a ship and you can kind of almost imagine right. flying to the next planet and things like that. Right. So, well, I always uh, say that when you're playing Artemis project and you move the, uh, we, uh, we call it a snow cat. It's a snow cat start player marker. When you move yeah. it from one player to another, you need to make like a, you know, a snowmobile sound. You got to go <laughs> as you're, as you're bringing it across the terrain. So yeah, you need to you need to pick up your ship. You need to blast it across space when you travel through the Artemis Odyssey. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm not a minis company, but I believe in, um, having miniatures and visuals that help tell the story you want to tell. And the truth is, you know, Kickstarter backers can wait. They could go buy a game off a shelf, uh, but yeah. that's not what they want. They, they want something more. They deserve something more. They're the ones who um, make the vision come to life. And, and if I don't serve those people, I don't have a company anymore. So I think the minis play, play uh, a different role for different games, right? And sometimes yeah, people can fall into the trap of creating minis for minis sake that they, you know, I think for a while there, there was this belief that if you want to hit the big numbers. You got to have the plastic crack, right? You got to have the, the minis in your game. And I almost fell into this trap myself on a more recent title that I launched, which Nighty Scrolls, the Oakwood Forest, you know, we have these little characters running around a tree, designed the minis, had everything ready to go on the mini side. And it drove the cost of the game so high and we took a step back and said, wait a second. I mean, this is just a casual, a casual game. Like it's a gateway right. game. What the heck are we doing creating minis for this game? It's completely unnecessary. Now, a game when you're doing like uh, space travel and, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's core to some of the different things you have. In those cases, I think it makes sense to have uh, minis, like you said. The other thing I want to touch on was the comment about uh, stretch goals. Because I know that stretch goals are, uh, there's been a lot of debate on this recently. And you've seen some publishers that will um, have moved away from stretch goals and they've gone to reveals, right? So they said, we're not going to do anything that we're, what you see in our game is, is what we're coming with. However, what we're going to do is we're going to kind of reveal some of it as we go along, right? So we're going to, you know, try to keep people interested that way. That's another approach to go. But I'm of the camp of, if you're going to launch a game, launch the game, you're going to launch, don't put in a bunch of fake, you know, stretch goals in, a, in an attempt to, you know, you know, string people along and so forth. If they're, if you're just adding them on for the sake of adding them on, the example I always give is the um, uh, UV finish. So UV finish on a game costs maybe five cents extra per copy. When you do the UV, you know, like a spot UV right. finish and but I'll see people put that as a stretch goal. You know, we're going to do UV finish on our box if we hit such and such a level. And it's kind of a fake stretch. It's not right. a real stretch goal because they're probably going to do that anyways, right? Right. So and to speak to that, you know, one of the things that I see that I don't care for, and it, I'm not criticizing any any individual creator, is um, when I build my initial quote for a, a project, 
Um, I, I build it based on what I expect the final components to be in terms of the component quality, the thickness of the cards, the thickness of the boards, the finish on the box, the finish on the cards, things like that. And I just feel like there's a minimum product that I need to be proud of putting out. And yeah. so I, I don't want to say never because I'm probably wrong, but I try not to bake, I'm sorry, I try not to make my stretch goals yeah. have to do with the quality of the physicality of the product. Yeah. Because I don't want to put out a product whose box is so thin that it sags without any pressure. I don't yeah. want to put out a product whose whose cards are so um, not, not snappy enough to be a satisfying shuffle when they are cards that need to be shuffled. Yeah. You know, um, there's just, like I said, I have sort of minimum standards for myself and, and yeah. I'm sure I've gotten criticisms on component quality, but I've always done what I felt was right for my products. Yeah. And there are place for stretch goals. And one example, if I use that last project as another example, where we have this player board where we could do a, a single layer player board, where it was just basically cutouts where the different pieces kind of nestled in the cubes and so forth. But we also had this really super premium uh, triple layer board which had the you know inner layered uh, graphics, uh, notches underneath to nestle the cards and so forth. Like it was, it increased the cost of the game substantially. So we had that as a stretch goal to say, look, here's the base game we're going to do. We're very proud of this game, but if we can get up to this, this higher level, we will do this triple layer board because we'll finally have the funds to do it because it's that much more expensive. Things like that, I think makes sense. Right. But I don't like these kind of little tiny iteratives. And kind of like you, I think it's important when you cost out your game, Cost out kind of like the holy crap version of your game. Like if I exactly. want, what what is the, the I like it called a showpiece, right? What does the showpiece game look like? What's that cost? Then start peeling back if you need to save, you know, if you need to, to cut costs or, or get your cost down. But I'd much rather get the costing on the, you know, that, that showpiece. Because from my experience, a lot of manufacturers, if you kind of come with a base game and then you want to start adding a bunch of stuff, it's almost like the price is going to ratchet up much, 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 much faster because they want to make up some, maybe some of the margin that they, they felt they should have charged earlier. Right. Where right. Start I off mean, with kind of, go ahead. I was just gonna say, you need to start with your high water mark and work yeah, backwards yeah, yeah. from there. But again, I still think there's certain things you don't, uh, you don't cut quality on like, you know, the thickness of a game board is pretty standard. You know, you yeah. don't, you don't put out a, a, uh, a card stock, a game board, and then say, Oh, we're, we're upgrading it to a real game board that, you know, yeah. that's, and there are, there are projects that do that. And I just, I can't take that approach. Yeah. No, that's cool. And I can see it in, in this game. So tell us a little bit about, I know we went off track there a little bit, but I just, I get no something I geek out over that kind of stuff. So <laughs> let, let's talk about the game. So how do you play this game? So I've got, I'm sharing the screen so people can see all the plastic elements. Mm -hmm. And again, they look incredible. So congratulations on that. The Starship's Thanks. my favorite. And I think the, probably the Terraformers is my second favorite in terms of those minis. But I like these kind of pog type uh, circular little uh, planets that you have, uh, right? As your little mini. So explain to people how they play this game. Like what's the gist of how you play this game? Sure. So basically the goal is to, is to score the most points by, um, you know, setting it's an engine building game and uh, with a very unique point mm. scoring mechanism um, where you are traveling throughout the galaxy through travel cards, managing your resources through resource production cards, and um, then building things and then scoring points based on that. And, um, you know, first you place the game board in the center of the table. No, I'm just kidding. Um, there is no game board. Um, I, I guess I'm not sure how much of an in-depth explanation you want, but essentially it's an action programming game where you are going to tactically choose to score 
when it makes sense to score. Yeah. And then, um, and then keep working that throughout the game. You can't really specialize in one area because one of the very unique scoring rules, there are four, four scoring cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the unique scoring rules is that you can't rescore a card until you've scored all your cards, then you can pick them back up and score them again. Mm-hmm. So the game forces you to keep balance in terms of how you are allocating your assets. But, um, but yeah, cool. it, it, ha- it has a leader follower mechanism where the person who plays a card is going to get a uh, more power or more choice or a slightly better mm-hmm. benefit than the, than the followers on the card. And, um, you know, over the course of about an hour, you've, uh, you, you've thrown your civilization galaxy wide and, uh, you know, hopefully you score enough points to win the game. And it's cool because you like you're, you're traveling from planet to planet. You can terraform planets. Um, I think you were saying, I think I saw you can actually, can you, tra- now who do you trade with? Are you trading with like other players? Or are you trading like with the, maybe the people that are actually on that planet? So whoever plays a, uh, a card is called the planner and mm. the planner has the opportunity to trade with both the other players and the bank Got and okay. the other players do not have an opportunity to trade. Got it. And then this player board where you're laying the cards down as you go, can you explain that a little bit, how that works? I got that as an animation here on my screen. Sure. So um, there's 10 total spaces on the board. You use a variable number of spaces depending on the number of players that you have. And essentially all of the cards you have in hand will execute in some fashion. Some will produce resources. Some will allow you to travel to a new system. Some will score. Uh, you mentioned the trade. And I think there's one other thing that I'm missing, but neither here nor there at the moment. Um and you lay your card, depending on the spaces that are in any given game, you lay your card down in any one of those spaces. They're numbered one through 10. They're going to resolve one through 10, but that doesn't mean that because I'm first, I have to lay my card in the number one slot. If it is more advantageous to me to have a few other cards execute and then my card go third or fourth, then that's mm-hmm. where I put it. And um, then once every spot in a given game is taken, you reveal them all one, one through 10 or one through eight. Again, it depends on the player count and um, all the things happen. Resources are produced, new planets are revealed, trades happen, point scoring opportunities are capitalized on. And um, you know, you really need to pay attention to what the other players need in order to be able to piggyback on their um, on the, on, on what they're aiming for. In fact, one of the through lines between the Artemis Project and the Artemis Odyssey, because they are mechanically completely different games, is that they are highly interactive. And I like to say that in both of those games, you are playing the players as much as you are playing the game. Got it. Now, this game also comes with game trays. Yep. Well. Yep. It, uh, it seemed like it was time to... to uh, really elevate my presentation. And there is nothing more satisfying than being able to open a box and have all of your bits in one spot. And you just lift yeah. that one thing out and have something, you know, I'm a function over form kind of guy. So um, the fact that it facilitates gameplay, it facilitates uh, setup and cleanup was as important to me as the aesthetic that it brought, that it brings to the finished product. And how does a solo mode work? How does, how, how did you guys kind of develop that? Um, the truth of the matter is, um, Serge and Bruno de- designed the solo mode. Um, mm. I've actually not played solo mode. I'm not a solo player. So <laughs> I, uh, I, I have a good friend in the area who is a solo guy, and he, he uh, vets a lot of my solo designs. So yeah. when he gives it the stamp of approval, I uh, give my thumbs up and say, okay, we're a go. Oh, that's cool. 
So is it, it does it have like an automa deck or like what, what was the key way that the solo the solo mode works? Um, if my memory serves, there are basically goal cards, and you pull a goal card at the beginning of the game, and that's what you angle mm. the game towards in order to consider yourself uh, have to have a victory or not. Gotcha. That's it's pretty cool. I uh, if if people want to follow this campaign along, of, of course I'm going to put a link in the show notes. So if Thank somebody you. wants to find it, just click on the link. It'll take you right there. Go to Kickstarter. You type in um, even if you type in Artemis, and then you'll find that uh, the two different uh, games will pop up. And you want to go to the Artemis Odyssey to mm. find this. I know that uh, Mark would uh, definitely love uh, your pledge if there's anybody that finds this interesting. I love space games myself. I love anything that's nice. kind of do with space, space exploration. I grew up watching Star Trek as a kid. So anytime I see something where you're building federations, I get kind of geeked out <laughs> over that and I love it. So I think that's pretty cool. Some of the marketing behind this. So I noticed you had Jellop is uh, you're using. So they're like a social media amplification company, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I've used Jellop on many campaigns. They do a bang up job um, on Artemis Odyssey, Odyssey. We started out with some really strong results and then they kind of tapered off. So mm -hmm. we have actually put Jellop on hold for the moment. Um, I may bring them back towards the end of the campaign to capitalize on the last, you know, 48, 72 hours. But, um, but yeah, I've seen great success with them on other projects. So using them again was kind of a, a you know, un, not really a question. Um, I'm not really sure why things didn't uh, pan out the way they have in the past. I mean, I have my suspicions. The fact that we yeah. don't have stretch goals, I think is a, is a 90% of the reason um, that we're just presenting a fully finished product. But, um, but yeah, you know, you win some, you lose some. They're a great organization. I will use them on my next campaign. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty typical too, right? Like if you look at Backer Kid, Jellop, uh, any of these other ones, uh, from my experience, you're typically pausing those campaigns mid-campaign. So usually you do a, a heavy, you know, first 48, you know, 72 hour uh, push. Then you kind of teeter off as you get near the end of that first week, getting the second, third week. Often that's just drops down either to zero or into maintenance. And then you ramp it back up for the last 72 hours. So right. um, pretty typical of what you would see. Um, certainly uh, this campaign, uh, I think for most people would be pretty excited to get the numbers that you've hit. <laughs> so congrats on that. Thank you. I think that's amazing. What's next for the guild? What, what do you got coming next? What's after this project? Sure. So um, we just came back from Gen Con and we released uh, many games there. Uh, uh, the Pumpkin Problem, the third game in our 18 card escape room game series nice. and a bunch of games based on some of our uh, strategic partnerships, Mythalix and Roll Camera and the Belgian Beers Race. So those are all, you know, we have origins in, in, in a week. And so those will all be there. And then in terms of brand spanking new projects, um, we'll be going to Kickstarter uh, first quarter next year with the expansion to the Artemis project called Satellites and Commanders. Oh, cool. um, and then just prior to that, we'll be releasing game number four in the Holiday Hijink series, which is called the Cupid Crisis. So, uh, so be on the lookout for that if you dig your escape room games. I think you'll be stunned at the amount of game that my designer puts in 18 cards. Let's go. So do you publish games outside of Kickstarter? Like, do you do some games straight to retail or... Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, I know this is um, not a wise position these days, but when I first got involved, it was always my goal to, you know, be like Stonemeyer Games and eventually break away from Kickstarter. Yeah. Now, sadly for me, the truth of the matter is I'm still a project to project company. I still use Kickstarter yeah. for um, a project of any significance. But when I produce a game like my 18 card escape room games 
And um, we're actually coming out with a mini expansion for Endangered. That's a single animal scenario for Monarch Butterflies. Putting a project like that on Kickstarter just uh, doesn't really seem to make sense. It's a, it's a low margin product. I have an audience that's in place. Um, I love Kickstarter, but paying them the you know uh, percentage that you pay them for their marketing platform that it is um, yeah. doesn't make sense when I have a really strong audience that uh, will come straight to my website. So you know, certainly if you can, yeah, if you can build that audience outside of that platform, it's always going to be more profitable, right? I don't think people sometimes realize how expensive it is. Once you do the Kickstarter taking their chunk, once your pledge managers take their chunk, once your social media amplification companies take their chunk, everybody takes their little pieces. There's not a lot left. (laughs) And now we're shipping, shipping right? Yeah. The shipping crisis. Some people are now losing money. Right. Yeah. Um, I will tell you that Aldabas, my last project, I am, uh, I like to think I'm in a good position. I I don't pay myself a lot of money. Um, and there are reasons for that, that I won't go into, but, um, you know, I take a modest salary so I can leave most of my money in the company and, and take care of things like this that arise. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm having to get a little bit creative with Aldabas. And, and another thing, let's speak to where Artemis Odyssey stands, is I, I had to charge more for shipping on Artemis Odyssey than I have ever charged before. Yeah. Um, subsidizing it the way I have in the past just wasn't possible. And that kind of breaks my heart because, I mean, my Kickstarter backers are what's making this happen. I yeah. want to give them as much as I can. And I hate shipping. Amazon has made us all hate shipping. But, yeah. uh, you know, it is what it is. There's not a lot I can do about it. But yeah, I there's this a, expectation that the shipping should be free, right? Right. So, and, but I'm uh, super grateful to the people who who stick by me and who stick by yeah. Grand Gamers Guild and who believe in our games. Um, it, it means the world. Oh, that's awesome. If people want to follow you, so they want to follow uh, the Grand Gamers Guild, is there like a general... Uh, like Facebook page or something they can go to, to, to follow the guild itself to kind of be exposed to all your projects and how do they do that? Yeah. The absolute best thing to do is because add this to the list of things that makes being a small publisher even more difficult mm-hmm. is the way social media doesn't really allow us to talk to our audience. I mean, there are like over 2000 people that follow me on Kickstarter. I'm on Facebook and yeah. I'll be lucky if a post does really well and gets seen by 400 of them. I, yeah. I mean, and they're constantly changing their algorithm. And, you know, these are people who like the page and said, I believe in this and I want to hear from it. And I can't reach them. So I still well, use can. Facebook. You just have to pay for it. <laughs> exactly. So I still use Facebook as my primary social uh, social media. But okay. really, the best thing you can do is visit grandgamersguild.com and sign up for the e-newsletter. Um, yeah. I try to keep them bite-sized and frequent rather than larger and infrequent. That's a strategy mm-hmm. I changed this year. Nice. And um and I think it's done well, but um, you know, if you're genuinely interested in what we have going on and you genuinely want to support, that is the place to go. Otherwise, you can, you know, intermittently see what we post on Facebook because that's what Facebook will do, and intermittently see what we post on Twitter because that's what Twitter will do. Awesome. Well, the Artemis Odyssey is on Kickstarter right now. Five days to go. If this is something that uh, people have found interesting, check out. Check out the page. And uh, if it's something that uh, you think that you'd be wanting to play, well, then why don't you give it a little pledge? It, uh, sure. even, a, even a dollar doesn't, uh, doesn't hurt anybody. So No, and Mark, for what it's worth, one other thing let me say is yeah. if you are going to be at Origins, um, 
I have what I call a, a checkout program, essentially. If you come hmm. to my booth and you want to play the game, I will literally hand you the prototype and you can walk away with it. I've never had anyone not return a game. And they go, they play, and then most of them pledge. We had really good success with that at Gen Con. So oh, swing awesome. by booth 331 and, uh, and borrow a game. Go play it and have fun. Okay, so booth 331 at Origins, Grand Gamers Guild. Mark, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for your time and all the best with this project. Eh? Thanks, man. I mean, this was a ton of fun. You take care. Cheers. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply join the Facebook group Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time. Thank you.